This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest philosophers to your fingertips. With more than 500 audio and video series on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming at thegreatcourses.com or on DVD and CD or via The Great Courses apps. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins. For this limited time, 80% off offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, the literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly uh, podcast of the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we are looking at a double issue, a combined issue, the July 6th, uh, July 13th issue of the Standard, which is the summer reading issue, um, which has no particular significance in itself, except that um, it's a double, it, the section is twice as long and it's uh, f uh, populated with titles that I, um, uh, for whatever reason, uh, think you might be interested in for reading at the beach or in the mountains or on the Isle of Capri or wherever you happen to find yourself this summer. And our first uh, piece is by Tevi Troy, um, a review of a book entitled Celebrity in Chief, A History of the Presidents and the Culture of Stardom by Kenneth T. Walsh from Paradigm Publishers. This is a book about the modern presidency in the age of celebrity, um, as you can imagine, up until comparatively recently in American history, uh, presidents were not really um, uh, their, their private lives and their every pronouncements and their families' uh, dynamics were not really in the news very much. That, of course, changed with the uh, invention of mass media in the 20th century, but probably not until the Kennedy presidency that, that we had presidents uh, uh, hanging out with movie stars and uh, uh, spending quality time with uh, the Frank Sinatras and and Judy Garland's and whatnot of the world, which, of course, this process has accelerated, um, depending to some degree on who the president is. Um, but we now have President Obama uh, sort of a routinely showing up on uh, uh, The Tonight Show or The View or something like that, which um, basically is unimaginable if you think of President Eisenhower or President... Uh, Nixon, or even some of the, or even Carter, I mean, some of the later Democratic presidents, not necessarily a partisan thing, but the the celebritification or the cheapening, however you want to describe it, of the presidency is the subject here, and it's a it's an interesting piece. That is followed by a review by Dominic Green of a book by Deborah Cadbury called Princes at War, The Bitter Battle Inside Britain's Royal Family in the Darkest Days of World War II. Uh, the subtitle is a little overwrought, as subtitles tend to be, but the subject is the four sons of King George V, um, 
Edward, who of course became Edward VIII, later the Duke of Windsor, uh, Albert, uh, who then became King George VI, and their two younger brothers, um, the Duke of Kent and the Duke of Gloucester, um, both a little lesser known. But it just traces how the four, um, um, uh, their lives in the war. Of course, uh, we now know that uh, of course, Edward VIII, the Duke of Windsor, was living in exile in France at the beginning of the war, and the the Chamberlain and then Churchill governments had to move uh, somewhat diplomatically and somewhat urgently to persuade him to to repatriate back to his own country. They were very much afraid that when the Germans invaded, as they did in May of 1940, that the Duke of Windsor, the former King of England, would be caught up in it, and they'd have a, a first-class um, uh, hostage on their hands, and of course we also know now that the Duke was was um, rather more um, uh, sympathetic to the German regime than might have been suspected earlier. Um, so it was all a kind of a mess that the that the government and and his brother the King had to deal with at a time when Britain was uh, contemplating its uh, prospects of its. Survival. George VI, of course, was famous for his gallant and, and uh, very conscientious um, service during the war as king, as the sort of symbol of British and especially London's resistance, along with uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, his wife, the mother of the present queen. Um, the Duke of Gloucester, probably the least known of the four brothers, was an army officer who, um, who uh, also served in the war. And the Duke of Kent... Um, uh, was an RAF pilot and, of course, was killed in, in 1942 in an, in an air crash. That is followed by a, a kind of interesting um, piece by Michael Rosen, a review of a book by Aaron Moore called That's Not English, Britishisms, Americanisms, and What Our English Says About Them, About Us, rather, from Gotham Publishers. And um, was it George Bernard Shaw that America and Britain are two uh, uh, English-speaking nations divided by a common language? Um, uh, it's a kind of a perennial subject, the, the difference between the English spoken here and the English spoken in Great Britain, or, of course, you could say in Jamaica or Australia or Singapore or any number of places. Um, England still being, as far as I, English, I, still being, so far as I know, the dominant language on the planet, still the language of, of, um, of um, uh, air travel, the language of the internet, and so on. But this is an update of the, uh, of the subject, um, uses a lot of um, terms and words and concepts which are very common here and unknown there, and very common there and unknown here. So um, uh, a very pleasurable and interesting um, book and, and essay. And of course, as is often the case, these differences um, tend to indicate um, deeper and more profound differences between us and the British and us and other English-speaking peoples. That is followed by a piece by uh, Michael Durda, the longtime uh, Washington Post book critic, of a biography entitled The Price of Valor, The Life of Audie Murphy, America's Most Decorated Hero of World War II. I was interested in this because when I was a boy, 
Um, the name of Audie Murphy was, I, I mean, I'm a baby boomer. It wasn't, it wasn't universally known. I don't know how many of my high school classmates would have known who Audie Murphy was, but a fair number of them did, and certainly people older than me uh, and certainly the World War II generation well knew who Audie Murphy was. He was a young Army officer who fought um, predominantly in Italy and uh, and also in in, in France, uh, maybe only in, in Western Europe, um, not Italy. I should say Northwestern Europe, since Italy is obviously in Europe. Um, but uh, Audie Murphy was the, the most decorated American soldier of the war, and after the war, uh, like many young men, he entered the army in, in the Second World War pretty much unformed. I think he went directly from high school. And so when he came out, he was rather celebrated. In those days, that often meant that uh, you got a, a summons from Hollywood, and, and there were a whole series of movies made starring Audie Murphy, not only one based on his own experiences in, in the war called To Hell and Back, but he would show up in cowboy movies and others. His his movie stardom eventually faded a bit, and then he died tragically in, a, in an airplane crash while he was still in his 40s. But he was one of those um, characters in the American constellation who's very high up and, and on everybody's lips and a kind of uh, uh, household word um, who now is largely forgotten, but but the particulars of his life and his career are are well worth um, reading about and tell us, as always, something about ourselves. That is followed by a piece by our own Claudia Anderson, managing editor of the Weekly Standard, of a book by um, Kirsten Powers, who is um, uh, a... Um, sort of the designated liberal on various Fox News stations, uh, programs rather. The book is entitled The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech, which is interesting partly this is a kind of a, a popular subject now, the extent to which public speech, public pronouncements are now being rigorously policed um, by the thought police and uh, people enforcing political correctness and has had any number of unhappy consequences, but one of them is that um, uh, the the phenomenon, which is fundamentally a left-wing phenomenon, is now beginning to bite left-wingers, um, and um, Kirsten Powers is not a, a hard-left person, but a good liberal, and so she contends with this in an interesting and instructive way. That is followed by a piece by Amy Henderson, a review of the Algonquin Roundtable New York, a historical guide by Kevin Fitzpatrick. Uh, yet again, another, um, another cultural phenomenon in American history not as well known today, but the denizens of the Algonquin Roundtable were sort of New York wits of the 1920s and early 30s, largely concentrated on the New Yorker magazine, Dorothy Parker, uh, Robert Benchley, George S. Kaufman, Franklin Pierce Adams, um, uh, Harpo Marx, uh, and others. Um, people whose names don't resonate quite as dramatically today as they once did, but the Algonquin Roundtable was in its um, heyday, a, a, a round table, literally, at, at the dining room at the Algonquin Hotel, which still thrives in New York. And it was a place where these people would gather and exchange witticisms and gossip and observations, and, and the phenomenon became well-known. 
and uh, still lives in the memory of many. And this is a delightful guide to uh, the people of the, the Round Table, where they lived. It's if you're if you're interested in the uh, popular intellectual life of New York in the early 20th century, first half of the 20th century, and you're visiting New York, this is the perfect guidebook for you. Sonny Bunch, who used to be with us at the Weekly Standard, is now managing editor of the Washington Free Beacon, has done a very nice piece on uh, Richard Schickel's um, book entitled Keepers, the Greatest Films and Personal Favorites of a Movie-Going Lifetime. Richard Schickel is the has been a Time, Inc. movie critic for the past half century or so, and he's now gathered together his his uh, his top uh, um, uh, couple of hundred movies. Sonny Bunch, who frequently writes about movies himself and is a one-time movie critic, uh, sometimes agrees with him, sometimes doesn't, but these lists are always fun because they tell us exactly what the list compiler thinks and uh, how we disagree with them and how we can all discuss movies and see different things in different films. Um, I would say Sonny's piece is almost as interesting as, as the book itself, as is um, an essay by Danny Heitman, a review of um, a collection of uh, essays called The Prince of Minor Writers, The Selected Essays of Max Beerbohm, edited by Philip Lopate. Max Beerbohm is a particular enthusiast, enthusiasm of mine. He was a great um, British essayist, uh, brilliant caricaturist and wit, um, born in 1872, died in 1956, but very much a figure of, of Edwardian England, um, a brilliant literary parodist. He kind of retired to Italy when he was in his late 30s in 1910, only returned to England to live during the two world wars, but still kept writing. And this is a collection basically designed to introduce you to Max. Um, so it has none of his cartoons, none of his caricatures, um, and none of his parodies, I think. It's mostly his essays. But Max is very much a, um, uh, an acquired taste. Uh, I'm, I myself am part of the small coterie of Maximilians in the English-speaking world. Um, I've always delighted in his writings. And this, The Prince of Minor Writers, edited by Philip Lopate, looks like a good introduction to Max. And Danny Heitman has written a splendid essay um, explaining Max to us. Aram Bakshian reviews, uh, who is a longtime White House speechwriter over the last uh, few decades, um, reviews a book entitled First Ladies, Presidential Historians on the Lives of 45 Iconic American Women um, by Susan Swayman C-SPAN. This is a, based on a C-SPAN series, but it's, it's an interesting look at the, at the um, um, 40-some women who have served as, who have been president spouses, have served as first ladies, have, as well as the women. Um, we've had a few presidents, of course, who were not married or were widowed. Uh, and so their house, their their functional first ladies were often um, nieces or sisters or whatever. Um, and um, but they all are um, like our presidents are an interesting uh, um, potpourri of Americans, and it's just fun to. This is one of those books you can just dip in at any given page and read about Grace Coolidge 
um, before you read about Abigail Adams, and it's just as pleasurable. Stephen Smith uh, reviews The Longest Afternoon, The 400 Men Who Decided the Battle of Waterloo by Brendan Sims. Uh, this is 2015, the bicentennial of the Battle of Waterloo, the, the battle that ended uh, the threat of Napoleonic dominance of Europe. It made the Duke of Wellington the great British hero of the 19th century. And the, the argument of this book is that the battle itself, which of course was was fought as much by uh, Prussians and others as by British troops, um, was actually decided by um, um, a couple of very comparatively minor but extremely decisive encounters at certain places on the battlefield. And this is one of those instances. It, it, um, military historians, I'm sure, will disagree about the validity of of the struggle for this farmhouse territory that, that the book uh, describes, um, but it's a fascinating, it's, it's, I think it's very difficult to describe military um, uh, subjects, especially battles, and especially heated battles where the records and, and uh, narratives are not really very clear. Uh, very difficult to describe them in any comprehensible way, but this, this I think, um, tries uh, and to some degree succeeds, and Stephen Smith um, evaluates it uh, in, a, in a fun way, I think. That is followed by a piece by Sophie Flack of a, an amusing memoir by a youngish writer named um, Una LaMarche entitled Unibrow, Misadventures of a Late Bloomer. Um, uh, Mose LaMarche is now uh, in her mid-30s, and it's it's a kind of a coming of age book in the nineteen well late nineteen eighties early nineties. But um, she's a a phenomenon we know in literature. The uh, highly intelligent and perceptive and observant um, um, child, a young person who doesn't quite fit you know a bit of a bit of a square peg in the round hole of life. And in this case, the author has both a delightfully self-deprecating sense of humor and a certain wisdom about the world. Um, anyway, Sophie Fleck um, thinks it's both a, a profound and pertinent and at times hilariously funny book, which we can recommend to you, Unibrow by Una LaMarche. Um, and then moving um, tonally in the opposite direction, David Aikman writes about uh, Emerson Baker's book from Oxford University Press entitled A Storm of Witchcraft, The Salem Trials and the American Experience. Um, the identification and prosecution and execution of a couple of dozen um, people, mostly women, in Salem in the late 17th century is an incident in our history that we've, we've never quite recovered from and we've never quite reached a consensus on how it happened and how it could have happened. Um, and this is the this is a very interesting uh, contemporary evaluation of the phenomenon. Of course, we always talk about witch hunts, and and some are are more lethal than others. But um, I've always argued that we've had certain incidents in modern times. I think most recently of the cases of child molestation at at um, daycare centers and nursery schools in the. 1980s and 90s, um, which all of which were found to be um, completely invalid, but it did 
it, it did result in, in uh, tremendously uh, uh, dramatic prosecutions and long imprisonments and in my view uh, is very much um, uh, tonally, emotionally, and in many other ways uh, very similar to what happened in Salem in the late 17th century. No one was killed um, but lives were certainly destroyed and proving once again that times change and technology improves and air conditioning is invented and all that but human nature uh, generally remains the same. And our final piece is a review by Anne Marlowe of a novel called The Valley by John Renahan which is set in Afghanistan uh, during the war and Anne Marlowe who is both a um, experienced um, correspondent of the Afghan war and a perceptive reader of fiction thinks it's by far the best um, novel she's read on the subject and I, I think for anyone it's it's not a it's not strictly a war novel but it's set in wartime Afghanistan and if you want to get a sense of what uh, what it's like for our soldiers and marines in Afghanistan and presumably in Iraq and elsewhere in that region. This is one way to do it, reading The Valley by John Renahan. Anyway, that is the summer reading issue. Uh, a little longer than usual, and therefore my podcast, I regret to say, is a little longer than usual. I apologize for the for the uh, for droning on, but I'm so enthusiastic about the 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 issue and, and, and the pieces we have that I couldn't help myself and I will try to do better next time, next week. Thank you very much.